0: Hello everyone, and welcome to this month's episode of the TMI Entrepreneurship Podcast. I am your host, Ashley Priori, and my wonderful co-host for this episode.
1: Hi, I'm Joshua White.
0: So this first season this year is gonna be slightly different because thanks to AOM, job market, just beginning of the year, fall semester excitement, We're doing a batch upload for these episodes, so it'll be Netflix style. You get the whole season in one full batch. The rest of the seasons will follow our normal once a month upload style. So listen to these three, and then we're back to normal starting with the December episode, which will be the first for season six. So this season is all about teaching. We feel like this is an area of our career that is obviously really important, but one that gets a little overlooked sometimes in favor of research. So we thought it would be really great to have three very different guests on for this season to talk about their experiences with teaching. So our first guest for this season is DePak Hedge. He's a professor of management at NYU Stern, and he won the Pedagogy Award for this year's entrepreneurship division. He did it based on this course he created called Endless Frontiers Lab, which we'll talk a little bit about today. But we are really excited to have him on here, our award winner for this year, to talk more about his teaching style and how he approaches every day in the classroom. So we welcome Dupac to this, and we're excited to hear what he has to say. So we always start with an icebreaker. Different seasons have different icebreakers. So since this one is all about teaching, our icebreaker question is when you were a kid what was the your favorite project or assignment you ever had in school? Yeah I
2: think uh, the first uh, project that really excited me was uh, um, you know a pottery project. Uh, Basically we were given a spinning wheel and a bunch of clay and we had to do stuff with it and I love to get my hands dirty anyway, so to know that I could do it in the company of a spinning wheel was somehow like super exciting. Um, So I guess that's uh, the one I remember. At the end of the day, obviously, I was all covered up in mud and and clay, and I don't think we eventually ended up molding anything to us. Form that I can be proud of, but uh, yeah, that's that's one I recall very fondly. fondly.
0: Did you choose to take pottery? Was it an elective? Like, how did you wind up in that class?
2: Oh, it, it was just—I uh, mean, this was uh, as a kid. I think we were just taken on a, a tour, uh, you know, of a local sort of um, potter's workshop or so, and uh, yeah, they they set aside something for us to play with, and that's how it happened. It was certainly not a class, but it was, the the tour was part of a project to get to know like your neighborhood and your locality better.
0: That's amazing. That's so cool. I don't, I never took a pottery class, so that sounds really neat. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got to the stage of your career? What led you to where you are now?
2: I'm in New York City and I am a professor of management and entrepreneurship at NYU Stern. Uh, How I got here was primarily through a series of accidents, a lot of good fortune and maybe a deep-seated curiosity um, about technology and the effects that it can have on society. Uh, That sort of deep-seated curiosity was in turn molded uh, for me growing up in a farming community back in India. My grandparents, my aunts and uncles, they were part of this community and over a period of 30 years, the last 30 years, I've seen how their lives were completely changed um, in the process of going from a village with no electricity and no plumbing to getting uh, the first sort of electric bulb uh, and then the refrigerator, then the television, uh, and then the internet and now basically making Uh, farming transactions on uh, their mobile phones. So uh, just kind of watching this process kind of, uh, you know, was very fascinating and uh, got me excited about uh, doing something more systematic about how technology comes into being and how it gets to affect people's lives. And um, I think the rest of it is a series of accidents. I landed in Georgia Tech where I had the good fortune of meeting great mentors who then pointed me towards UC Berkeley, which had a fantastic program to study technology, and then graduating from there and landing at NYU for, uh, for my first job.
1: I was curious though, um, you started as an engineer and then and then made the switch into academia. So I was just curious, like, why did you decide to make that jump?
2: Yeah, so first, uh, when I graduated from an engineering school in India, Um, We had offers from tons of engineering companies, multinational companies that were coming into India because the Indian economy was at a point when it was just getting liberalized, bringing in all these companies. So uh, then, although I was already very curious about learning uh, the the effect that technology has on people's lives, uh, the the attract the attraction of a large salary for me uh, an order of magnitude larger than I'd ever seen. Uh, and the, the financial independence that came with it was too hard to resist. So I ended up uh, obviously graduating out of an engineering college, taking up uh, a job as an engineer uh, for a large technology company in Germany. But after doing that for about uh, two and a half, three years, um, You know, I I wanted to really go back and explore my curiosity Uh, that landed me at Georgia Tech, a really good engineering school. So I could still sort of go back to engineering if I wanted to, uh, while getting to know, like, what things would be if I studied things like public policy, economics, uh, and some of the related fields that people told me would be what I should be studying to pursue my interests. So basically kind of that landed me at Georgia Tech where um, I got introduced to great people who sort of uh, more clearly formulated my interests and um, kind of leading to my applying to Berkeley and so on. So it was again, kind of that deep-seated desire to um, understand better kind of the business strategy, public policy, societal implications of technology um, that, that led me eventually, uh, to, to where
1: I am. Yeah. You know, after making the switch, you've certainly had a lot of success, you know, in, in this new career field, you know, it wasn't what you planned to do maybe at the beginning, but man, it's been quite illustrious, you know, congratulations by the way, you know, on winning the, uh, innovation and in pedagogy award. Uh, that was amazing. We were wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your experiences, uh, you know, how that came to be and specifically, you know, creating the endless, uh, frontier labs.
2: Yeah, uh, thanks a lot, and uh, um, uh, there, there's a lot of good fortune uh, involved with with, with like, uh, you know, where you see me uh, at this point, uh, but um, regarding the endless frontier labs, my research uh, is really about new technology, how it gets funded and commercialized, uh, that has always been my research, and um, At some point, uh, you know, given my curiosity, I started uh, learning uh, more about individual stories of how great sort of technology oriented companies come into being. And I was fascinated by the story of um, a company that was started uh, because um, there was this unemployed MBA student, actually from Brooklyn, who was very curious about science. In particular, he was curious about scientific invention back in those days in the 70s called recombinant DNA technology. But he was not himself an expert uh, in that technology. So he was reading all the latest scientific journals and so on, and a bunch of professors at Stanford and UCSF were doing research on recombinant DNA technology. That made this MBA student really curious, and being unemployed, um, he ended up uh, meeting these scientists after using up the little money he had to take a one-way flight to San Francisco, and he ended up convincing the founders, of scientific founders of uh, recombinant DNA technology, to give up his job, to collaborate with him, and start a company dedicated to commercializing recombinant DNA technology. So the two te- came together, a, an unemployed MBA student and a tenured uh, faculty scientist from UCSF to commercialize recombinant DNA technology. And that company later on became Genentech uh, and pretty much seeded uh, the biotech, biotech uh, sort of revolution. Uh, and so this story really inspired there are many of these brilliant scientific inventions coming out of our universities and labs that if they are not matched with the commercial drive of a Robert Swanson, he was the unemployed graduate student, uh, then they might fall through the cracks. So um, at that point, I thought we should do something systematic about it. Uh, and they, that in turn led to the creation of uh, what is today and NS Frontier Labs, where we bring in uh, brilliant technological innovations uh, that underpin startups, uh, but that are also founded by more technical founders and therefore can um, kind of be much better off with adequate business guidance that can help them be more successful commercially and in the marketplace. So that was really kind of uh, the, the spark that led to the creation of the Endless Frontier Labs. I should also thank my extraordinary colleagues at NYU Stern, uh, who at that point in time encouraged me and provided me with the resources to build a program around this idea uh, and really kind of um, find a way to also uh, kind of manage the program while. Um, bringing our own MBAs at NYU Stern into the mix uh, to to learn about entrepreneurship as well. So uh, that's how we got started with the Industrial Labs.
0: That's so cool. It's cool. That it's, it was inspired by like an actual practical story too. Yeah.
2: I mean, uh, again, a lot of uh, good fortune and uh, great supporters and mentors uh, that, that are essential to being able to do something about it. But uh, I guess if you have a vision, you have to believe in it and persist in it. And so uh, that's something I see a lot of with the entrepreneurs I see. So it's not too hard to continue to be inspired.
0: That's great. So, you know, through all of this experiential teaching that you've done, what are some of the best practices you've learned for developing experiential teaching?
2: So, I don't know that I will call it best practices because I'm still learning and I'm nowhere close to coming up with what I can call, uh, you know, something uh, that it's at a stage that I can call it a best practice, but I'll tell you what I think the primary challenges are. And if any of your listeners have any ideas, obviously I would love to hear from them. I think the first time I taught the experiential learning class, I realized oh my Lord, it's not one syllabus that works for the class. There are, in fact, as many syllabi as the number of students in the class. Why does that happen? That's because with experiential learning, right? Most of the experiences of the students happen outside of the classroom. And with my Endless Frontier Labs course, for example, every student that is part of the class is matched with the startup that is in the program. And the work between the startup and the MBA student, that happens outside of the classroom. So the questions that come up and what the MBAs need to know in order to answer those questions or help the startups, it varies depending on the startup that they are matched with. So the first thing really is that in experiential learning classes, the first challenge is that you don't control like the primary learning environment. That is a challenge. And the second related challenge that comes out of that is the entire sort of variation and the variance in curriculum and course material that is implicitly created by the learning experiences having outside of the classroom. So these are the challenges that I think, if you're aware of, you could think of uh, maybe best practices or practices that address this challenge. Um, And that is the point at which I currently am.
0: So when you first started teaching, what were some things that you now think, oh, I wish I knew this or some things that it might be useful for students who are just starting to teach to keep in mind as they're trying to build out their philosophy and the way they structure their classes?
2: Yeah, I think uh, just looking back and thinking about it even now, there is one thing and one thing only. It is easier to say but harder to implement, and it is this, which is when I went into a classroom for the first time, I used to be just insanely worried about whether or not I would have answers to all the possible questions that might come up in the class and my approach then was to become the absolute master of content so you know really knowing all the details about a case if there was a company involved knowing its entire history so if some question from a student who's actually worked at that company or in that industry came up i could give a competent answer and so on but it took a while to realize that in reality that is impossible you're teaching a class of 60 students they all have their own experience uh, and it's never possible to have the knowledge and the greatest depth that each one of them might have in their own industry. So basically I used to be very focused on content and get very nervous about really kind of carrying with me like or in my brain like that grab bag of facts that would help me answer the questions. I think at the end of the day, I don't think it really matters. I mean, of course, it helps that you, that you know your stuff; that is kind of essential. But beyond a certain point, I don't think it really matters that you know like every little detail or fact. So uh, instead, what matters a lot is your preparation regarding the process of teaching. Uh, when I mean process, like if you have a learning goal in mind right? You could possibly accomplish that goal through different sort of approaches. One could be the Socratic method. You ask a series of questions and draw out the answers from the students. You challenge them. Another could be straight up like lecture and instruction. Like you put up PowerPoint slides and you tell them the answer. Another is kind of inductive learning. Like you give like examples and after five examples, you try to tease out like learning from that. So getting that sort of process right, where you have thought about like, what is the process that you're gonna use? Uh, and even maybe more little details like, um, you know what fraction of the class is going to be you speaking versus the students? Uh, and then if there are some experts in the room, knowing their background beforehand, and calling them out to answer some questions that might come up. So uh, these are all, in my view, kind of process-related sort of aspects. And I think it is, at the end of the day, the the amount of time you put on the process that really matters for the learning experience and less the additional time uh, you spend acquiring facts. So yeah, I think that's kind of one thing that I learned. I still don't do it when I go into teach. I wish I kept it more consciously in my mind. Uh, that would be better for my students and me. Uh, but uh, that's one thing I cannot emphasize enough for new teachers.
1: You see, you strike me as incredibly humble because you know, as we as we talk about all of these things and ask you about resources and things like that, in you know, awards and things, you know, um, you've uh, been very gracious with us. So I hate putting you on the spot with this question, you know, but one of the things I think was interesting is you mentioned that uh, your teaching evaluations could suffer, you know, if you implement this stuff. And the reason I think that's funny is because you were named, uh, you know, one of the top 40 under 40 by poets and quants. And so, you know, clearly like, you know, you've had a lot of recognition and things like that. I was just curious what that felt like to be, to have that designation and just like, you know, how that came to be and, Um, You know, clearly you have, you know, your students really support you. And I think that's fantastic. The relationship that you've built with them.
2: Yeah. I mean, uh, the recognition is always uh, very welcome uh, and it matters a lot because it is when you're recognized that, you know, students uh, can take a variety of classes. They are all very smart students. And we all like enjoy kind of teaching students who are smart, who do the work and are curious about stuff. And they, in turn, kind of create this virtual cycle pushing you to learn and do better. And so I think recognition is a very key part of the process. I think getting the recognition helps me attract better students. It helps me also, like, at least mentally for myself, create that safety net to experiment. Knowing that, okay, I have this recognition. So if th- something goes wrong, you know, I am going to get a bit more <laughs> leeway. Right. So I think it helps a lot. Uh, so it felt very gratifying and really kind of also liberated me to take uh, more risks uh, and so on. Uh, and then I think it was for my teaching um, our part time MBA students primarily and uh, courses on strategy that got me this recognition obviously, that's a more structured course to teach with a set curriculum relative to the endless frontier labs. But obviously, getting that recognition eventually led me to take the risk, you know, to take to propose and implement the endless frontier labs and so on. So I think it's great. Like, I mean, in academia, I mean, you all know, right? I mean, there's only so much you get in terms of the type of recognition that um, the private sector can award so recognition matters a lot uh, and um, yeah so it felt great to receive uh, the 40 under 40 award uh, but uh, clearly i won't be able to keep that designation i knew for too long <laughs> uh, i i only be 40 for so so many years uh, or under 40 for so many years so so that that was great, but also the most uh, more, more recent recognition uh, from the AOM was uh, fantastic to receive as well.
0: Looking back on your career so far and all the great things that you've done, if you could give yourself one piece of advice about anything for when you first started your PhD program, what would that one piece of advice be?
2: I mean, thankfully, I don't think it is a lesson I myself had to learn, uh, but it, it, you know. Um, The the one piece of advice is do or say no evil. That's kind of number one, uh, right? I think it is absolutely okay. And our profession cannot progress if you're not relatively candid with your feedback, but think about how you state it. And in particular, don't make it personal. Uh, People have long memories. Uh, At the end of the day, outcomes in academia are driven by talent, of course, but a large fraction of it is um, kind of the social aspect of it. And so don't uh, collect bad social capital uh, by saying anything that is, you know, like that that, that can come back to bite you or haunt you. So that's sort of one thing I would say. Uh, just make friends. And if you have disagreements, it's OK. Know that friends can have disagreements, too, and move on that, is what I would say.
0: I like that advice. That's good advice.
2: I had a
1: great, this was awesome. This was, this is fantastic. Great.
0: I'm really excited. We're doing a teaching season and it's awesome to have someone who's won awards for this as our. Oh, really, I
2: mean, this is all like, yeah, there's a lot of good luck involved here, but, uh, and I know, and I, I am uh, jealous of some teachers who seem naturally good. They can just like, walk into a classroom and they, they have a presence that they command that people just, you know, uh, want to listen to them. I, I certainly don't think I'm one of those who has it. And so uh, I, I think there's a lot of good luck and obviously hard work also involved. Uh, but thanks a lot for this opportunity.
0: Well, thank you so much, Dipak. This has been uh, great. I've, I've really enjoyed this. Thank you so much. So we want to say a big thanks to Depak for being with us today and offering all of the great insights and advice that he did. We also want to thank all of you for listening and for hanging out with us while we had our brief hiatus. We're excited to be back and doing these episodes and offering this podcast for all of you. If you have any suggestions or questions for future episodes, please feel free to reach out to our email address. T-M-I-E-N-T-P-O-D at gmail.com. And Andrew, Josh, and I look forward to reading your suggestions and hearing from you. And until next time.